sometimes if you take empathy quite literally, it means you're literally feeling what the other person is feeling. So if someone is drowning and you also feel like you can't breathe, it's harder for you to help. Yeah. So sometimes empathy can cause burnout, whereas compassion, which is really about what can I, I understand that you're in pain and what can I do to help, uh, is is energizing. I mean, certainly the moments that I have felt the best throughout this crisis is when I've been helping other people deal with what they're dealing with. What's up, everybody? I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Process Makes Perfect. As always, we're talking with experts in process creation, automation, and delegation. Basically, the people that make business easier. You just heard from Kim Scott, and this episode is all about the process of using radical candor in the workplace. Kim is the author and co-founder of Radical Candor. If you haven't read the book, definitely pick up a copy. Previously, Kim led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick online sales and operations at Google before joining Apple to develop and teach a leadership seminar. Kim has been a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and several other companies. This episode's a little bit different from other episodes that we typically have on this show. It's a live recording from an event that we did called Training with Empathy, which we hosted in partnership with Gary Vaynerchuk's Empathy Wines last month. In this episode, I had a conversation with Kim about the concept of ruinous empathy and how to use radical candor in the workplace. I hope you enjoy it. Can this business thrive without the owner? You've got to start putting systems and processes in place. If you don't use the systems, the business will break. We're always looking to buy back our time. You cannot say something once and expect that it actually is received. This is the way we work. A big motivation in that for me is creating a job for myself that I really enjoy. This is how you discover your vision. And this is Process Makes Perfect. I'll speak on behalf of everyone and say that I am super excited to have you here and to talk with you. So everybody, welcome Kim Scott to the virtual stage. Our team actually read this book last year in Q3. We started a, a book club just uh -huh. for the company, and this was the first book we picked. <laughs> oh, so, I'm honored. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, amazing. And so for everyone else, if you haven't heard of Kim, Kim Scott's the co-founder of an executive education company and workplace comedy series based on her New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Radical Candor. Previously, Kim led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick online sales and operations at Google before helping Apple develop and teach its leadership seminar. Kim's also acted as a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and several other tech companies. Sounds like we need you here at Trainual as well. <laughs> it looks thank like you. you're doing pretty well. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you. It's really great to be here and uh, enjoyed the last session as well. So everybody's already posting, they're excited to hear from you, but for anyone that hasn't read the book, I think everybody's heard of it, but for anyone that hasn't read it, can you give us a brief intro of just where this concept of radical candor came from? Sure. So radical candor basically means caring personally at the same time that you challenge directly. Or if you want to abstract up even a little more, it's about love and truth at the same time. Hmm. And I think all too often we feel like we have to choose between love and truth. And the fact of the matter is when we really care about people, we tell them what we really think. And when we tell people what we really think in a way that's effective, we're also showing them that we care at the same time. So the two things are inextricably linked. I think one of the things that can be helpful in explaining what radical candor is, is to explain what it isn't. 
So, in fact, the, the most, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And, uh, <laughs> and some of the most common feedback I got is that very often people confuse radical candor with what I call obnoxious aggression. And obnoxious aggression is what happens when you do challenge directly, but you fail to remember to show that you care personally. And I used to call this the asshole quadrant because it seemed, I don't know, more radically Just candid. Mean. Yeah, 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 it seemed more clear. But I, I quit doing that for a very important reason. And the reason was that as soon as I did that, people would use the radical candor framework like some kind of new Myers-Briggs test, like some kind of personality test. And I beg you, don't do it this way. We all act like jerks multiple times a day, unfortunately. So, and, and the key thing is what you do when you realize you've landed in the obnoxious aggression quadrant, when you've, you have challenged somebody and you've forgotten to show them that you care. And unfortunately, it is our instinct to move the wrong way on challenge directly instead of moving the right way on care personally. And then you wind up in the worst place of all, in manipulative insincerity, where you're neither caring nor challenging, you're just trying to sort of offer a false apology or, or offer some passive aggression or, or whatnot. And it's fun at work especially, but in life in general, to tell stories about about obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. This is where the drama of life comes from. The fact of the matter is, the vast majority of us make the vast majority of our mistakes when we do remember to show we care and we're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings that we don't tell them something they'd be better off knowing. And that I call ruinous empathy. So that's what radical candor is and what it isn't. So for everyone that's a visual thinker like me, picture the spectrum, you know, it's on, it's on the book here and you've got yeah. the, the axes of how much you're caring and then the axes of how much you're, uh, you're directly, you're being open and, and not confrontational, I guess, but just, just direct with someone. When, when I was listening to the book, I was running around my neighborhood and I was laughing at the example you gave about someone's fly being down. I think that's a really easy yeah. way to describe this. So, so if you, everybody's been in this situation. So how, how, does, how does that represent each of the quadrants? So you, in fact, it's a really good, the reason why I use that example of your fly being down is because it, one of the things that can make radical candor easier is if you, if you think about a simple example, and I think we all know that the kind thing to do when someone's fly is down is to tell them because they don't wanna walk through the rest of their day with the fly down. So the radically candid way to explain your fly is down is to say to them, pull them aside, say in private, you know, I hate it when this happens to me and I always appreciate it when people tell me, so your fly is down. Just tell them, pull them aside, mm -hmm. tell them quietly, tell them with a little empathy. The obnoxiously aggressive way to tell them their fly is down is to point it out in front of a bunch of people. Hey, look, that asshole's fly is down. Uh, <laughs> the, the ruinously empathetic thing to do is not to say anything because you're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings. And then you're allowing them to go through the rest of their day with their fly down. And, and the manipulatively insincere way to tell them that their fly is down is not to tell them, but to whisper to everybody else and to, to point it out. So here's for the visual people, I, I don't know if this helps, but here is the two by two in a nutshell. I should have had it ready on a slide, uh, oh, but, it, but it, does, it does help, I think, a lot of people to see it. 
Yeah. So in situations like that, where someone's fly is down or they've got food in their teeth, I think everybody knows the nice thing to do is to quietly say that. So why is that kind of feedback so much harder in the workplace when it, when you're dealing with, with work issues? Well, why is that? I think, I think honestly, it's hard at home. It's hard. Uh, A lot of people, when I give this talk, will come up to me afterwards and say, oh, if I had only heard this five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced right now. So I think it's hard actually in all our relationships. But I, I think there's a couple of reasons why it's hard. And I think part of the reason why it's hard at work is most of us get our first job when we're 18, 19, 20 years old. And we're right at that moment in our lives when our egos are maximally fragile, at least least mine was at 18. But our personas are beginning to solidify. We're putting on a mask. Mm -hmm. And right at this moment, someone will come along and say, be professional. And I think for an awful lot of people, that gets translated to mean, leave your emotions, leave your real identity, leave your humanity, leave everything that's best about you at home and show up at work like some kind of robot. Leave your, you know, you can't pretend that you don't have emotions at work. And that I think is what hurts us on the care personally dimension because you can't possibly care personally about others if you're showing up at work like some kind of robot. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is happens when we're even younger, when we're sort of 18 months old and we're just learning to speak Hmm. and we're out in public and we say to our parents, you know, look at that, you know, so-and-so person and we'll describe something horrible. Or I have a two-year-old that if I, if, if I just happen to get a pimple or something, he announces it to the whole restaurant and he's like, what's on your face? And and it's tempting as a parent. And I know my parents said it to me and I've made the mistake of saying it to, to my kids. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And now all of a sudden, fast forward 20, 30 years, and it's your job to say it. And this is hard. It's really hard to undo training that's been pounded into our head since we learned to speak. So I think it's a combination of those two things, of, of this be professional business and this, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, that make it hard. But I think there's also almost an evolutionary reason why it's difficult. And the reason is that for, for, for most of human evolution, if we offended someone we were thrown out of the tribe and we were dead. And so we have a real negativity bias when it comes to to social interactions. And even though it's been my experience and the experience of the vast majority of people I've coached that nine times out of 10, when you offer radical candor, it's welcome. It strengthens your relationship. But one time out of 10, I will not, will not pull my punches, you will have a radical candor train wreck. And someone will cry, someone will, will yell, someone will be offended, and, and then you have to clean that mess up. And I think for some reason we're all optimizing for that one time out of 10 instead of the nine times out of 10. So you're saying Bambi ruined us. <laughs> we, we're, we're all conditioned to just hide our feelings, but we've got yes. to fix it. So, so Everybody that's listening in here, what's the way that you recommend giving feedback? What's the right way to approach a difficult conversation in the workplace, whether it's with a peer or a direct report? I think one of the most important things to remember is that radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. And so I can't, I can't give you an objective 
here are radically candid words and here are bad words. You know, there's, <laughs> there's not one right way. You, you've got to be able to gauge what you're, what you're thinking. But I will, I will offer you kind of an order of operations, a way to think about this. Uh, first thing is don't dish it out before you prove you can take it. So start by soliciting radical candor, not by offering it. And, uh, and if, if, we, if you all do only one thing as a result of our time here today together, and it's this one thing, it would have, will have been time very well spent. Think about how you're going to ask for feedback. Because if you say, do you have any feedback for me? I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. You know, so, so you're wasting your breath. So you want to make sure you ask in a way that shows you genuinely want to know the answer. And also that you ask in a way that can't be answered with, oh, no, everything's fine. Do you have any, you know, is always going to get answered. Oh, no, everything's fine. So simple question that, that my coach when I was at Google, Fred Kaufman, offered to me that I like is tell me what I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me. So I like that question. However, I was, coaching, I was coaching Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable, and she said, I hate that question. I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. She said, the question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. That's also fine. Uh, you, you've got to find the way you Pick to your ask. style. Yeah, yeah. But make sure you're not asking it that way if somebody has a relative who has a drug habit. You know, you really do have to make sure that you're aware of what's going on for the person who you're talking to. So that's what? one, solicit feedback. Thing, I'm gonna go through four things yeah, go ahead. And, then, and then I'll let, uh, sorry, I babble, babble, babble. So the second thing is you really need to focus on the good stuff. Another mistake that people make about radical caners, they think it's all about giving criticism and it's not. Part of your job as a colleague or as a leader is to paint a picture of what's possible. And praise is actually a much more effective tool for doing that than criticism. So you want to make sure that you are, uh, are focusing on the good stuff and offering praise and, and treating praise uh, with as much discipline as you treat criticism. Sorry, there's a truck going by. And so, so that's thing number two is praise. Thing number three is, is now you've kind of gotten yourself into a better state of mind and the other person into a better state of mind to offer criticism. And keep in mind, all of these three things can happen in like two minutes or less. So it's, this is not some sort of Six Sigma process I'm talking about. Um, the, the, the very best feedback I've ever gotten in my career has always happened in these impromptu two-minute conversation. So when you go into a conversation offering criticism, keep a couple of things top of mind. Be humble. I call it candor and not truth. Because if you walk into some, someone, if you walk up to someone's desk and you say, I'm going to tell you the truth, they kind of, that kind of implies, I have a pipeline to God and you don't know shit from right. Chinola. And that's not, am I allowed to curse on this, by the way? Sure. <laughs> Whatever's natural for you. <laughs> Uh, so, so I think you want to make sure that you're opening a conversation and, and by candor, I sort of think it means here's what I see. I want to know what you see. And, mm -hmm. and that kind of candor is a gift in one of two ways. It's either a gift because you're right about what you see and you're giving the person an opportunity to fix it, 
or it's a gift because you're wrong about yeah. what you think you see. And, but only in sharing the per, with the other person your thoughts do you give them an opportunity to correct your thinking. So that's sort of giving criticism. Yeah, our last speaker, Michael Ventura, talked about the, this loop of you know, what you heard and what you understood and what yes. I said and what I thought I said. And I think that's brilliant because you know, the, if there is a disconnect, you've got to revisit where, where did we get it wrong? And, and one of the two things you mentioned will happen. So when, when you're soliciting feedback, Two questions. First, do you do it by surveys or do you do it in person? I do it in person. I think surveys, I mean, it depends. Obviously, if I want to solicit feedback from 10,000 people, I, I can't do that in person. So I think that one of the things that is really helpful is, uh, is to, to be very clear on, on who you're you can't build a relationship with more than five or six people. So if you're going to get feedback from your team, from your five or six direct reports, do that in person. And if you're going to get feedback from a bigger group of people, you want to do a couple of things. You want to treat the survey sort of like a, uh, it's like a fire alarm. But you got, you got to make sure you also, if you see that there's a fire happening, you got to have a, you got to have the, the firefighters at the ready and right. you have to do some firefighting yourself. So for example, when I was leading a team of 700 people, I obviously couldn't solicit feedback from all 700 people. So one of the things I would do is, is sort of a, a, what I call the speak truth to power meeting. So I would speak to all the direct reports of each of my direct reports at least once a year and ask them to, to tell me what their boss could do or stop doing that would make them easier to work with. Yeah. And, and I would communicate that very openly to the boss. And it was, it was clearly part of a process. It wasn't merely, uh, I'm just going after the managers who I think are having problems. <laughs> it, was part, it had to be part of a routine process. Okay, so if you've got this process and you've got 700 people, the, the next question, I know a lot of people do surveys and I'm curious, if they are, should they be confidential or should it be, you know, you know who's giving you feedback? So there is a time and a place for confidential feedback, especially when there's mistrust in an organization. So I think that if, if, you're, if you are offering a survey, I think it's okay to offer, conf, to offer people the ability to give you, it's not just okay, it's important yeah. to, to create a system that allows people to give you confidential feedback. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, I think it's a little bit different when you post things in a public place because you can start to get a lot of moral grandstanding that is unproductive. So, so one, of the, one of the things that I talk about in the book is a, a leader I know had what he called the orange box. So he became, he became a leader of a team. It was a couple thousand people, so it was a big team. And there was a lot of mistrust on the team. And so he put these or, an orange box near the bathrooms in a kind of a, a well-trafficked box, A feedback box, but it okay. was locked. And he gave the key to the box to someone on the team that had a lot of trust of the, mm. of the broad team. And at his all hands meeting, he would, he, the guy with the key would come up and open up the orange box. And this leader who was a very introverted person put himself on the spot week after week saying, whatever the feedback is, I'm going to read it out and I'm going to address it. 
And I think that began, over time, the orange box emptied out and people came and talked to him directly. So you want to make sure that when you're offering anonymous feedback options, it's in the service of building trust and creating the kind of environment where people can come to you directly. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. I also think when you, when, you're, when you have a survey planned, and I love surveys. I was on the board of Qualtrics. I'm a big survey. I'm not anti-survey by, <laughs> by any stretch. Uh, but I think when you, when you send out a survey and you solicit feedback, one of the things that Qualtrics focuses on is you got to plan your actions. If you just elicit all this negativity and you don't do anything about it, you can create cynicism. So you got to make sure that you're using your survey like, like a smoke alarm, but you also have your, your firefighters at the ready. Yeah, great, great example with the firefighting. Because as long as you're ready to go and take action, if you take yeah. the feedback and do nothing about it, it's, it's useless. It's it probably does more harm. Yeah, I had once a boss who said, I'm going to go on a listening tour. And he made everybody do all these PowerPoints. And then he just did what he was going to do in the first place. It was infuriating. It was just like, look, if, you want, if you're going to do what you're going to do, just do it. Don't make me create these great PowerPoints to deliver to you, which you're going to then ignore. Like, right. That's a waste of time. All right. So uh, when it comes to feedback, one of the things you, you mentioned in the book, which I had never heard this before, I don't know how common a term it is, but the, the idea of the feedback sandwich where you say yeah. something really nice, butter them up, and then yeah. you squeeze in the feedback, and then you end with something nice. And that's not the way to do it, right? Well, so there's no absolute formula for this. Uh, the problem, there's a bunch of problems with the feedback sandwich. I think it also has other less polite terms for it. Uh, so, so I think the problem is that very often when people try to boil down what they're saying to others into some kind of formula, they, they come off sounding very insincere. So they'll wind up saying something like, you know, I love your haircut. This whole conference sucks, but what a nice blue sweater you have. Like, by the way, this whole conference is wonderful. But, uh, but that would be an example of, of a feedback sandwich where, where I'm saying I'm talking the positive stuff is not stuff I really – that's important or that I've given a lot of thought to. Right. Um, so, so, so it can hurt your ability to be, when you're offering praise, you want to be specific and sincere. And if you're using a formula, you're, that's, that's usually not in service of specific and sincere. And, and when you're offering criticism, you want to be kind and clear. So, so that's kind of speaker's mouth. But you also need to pay a lot of attention to listener's ear. And for a lot of people, like, if you're going to give me criticism, you better just give me criticism. Because if you give me praise and criticism, I will choose to hear the praise. <laughs> so, so on the other hand, my sister, if you're going to give her praise, you better not offer it with any criticism because she will only hear the criticism. So yeah. different people are different. And you've got to adjust how you're speaking. You've got to get to know the people who you're working with well enough to be able to see that. Does right. that make sense? Yeah. And, and showing that you care doesn't have to be a compliment. It can just be like you say in the book, you know, it's, it's, I know you want to advance your career. So here's how I'm going to help you do that. And, and I think it's great feedback. Yeah. No, I'll tell you, for me, the origin story of radical candor came in the space of time. It took a light to change on the street of Manhattan. I had this puppy, a golden retriever puppy, Belvedere, and I loved Belvedere and I loved her so much. I had never said a crossword to her. And as a result, she was totally out of control. So I'm walking her down the street. She's jumping all over the place. She jumps in front of a cab. I pull her out of the way just in the nick of time. 
And this man, a perfect stranger, says to me, I can see you really love that dog. That's all he has to do to show he cares personally. Yeah. He doesn't have to offer me some long compliment. Uh, he just has to see me as a human being who loves her dog in the moment. Yeah. But he says to me, you're going to kill that dog if you don't teach her to sit. Sit, he says. It's kind of very <laughs> harsh voice. And she sat. I had no idea she even knew what that meant. I kind of looked up at him in amazement. And he said, it's not me. It's clear. So, and then he walked off, leaving me with words to live by. So yeah. you can make a big difference if you show someone you care, but it doesn't have to be remembering their birthday or taking them out to lunch or some long drawn out thing. It's about seeing the humanity of the person in the moment. And it can take five seconds. Yeah. It's not mean, it's clear. I, I love that. So, so for people in here that have teams or running companies, you know, the, the difference between uh, being obnoxious and being radically candid, uh, it, 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 you need to care about your people. And so what are yeah. some ways that, they, that, that people listening can build up that currency of showing their teams that they care on a regular basis? So I think right now, especially when, when there's so much is going on for people, there's, there's a couple of simple things you can do. One, if you're having a staff meeting, start that meeting. So let's say you have 10, 15 people in the meeting. Start that meeting with a check-in and give people, and it doesn't need to take more than five minutes, but give people an opportunity to say what's going on for them. And some people will have had amazing things happen that week and these wonderful moments with their children. Other people will have had terrible things happen to them that week. And it is because we're literally looking into each other's living rooms or bedrooms, some case. So some people are having these meetings in their bathrooms I was reading because it's the only quiet place else where they can lock the door. That we're, we're seeing people, we're seeing into people's intimate lives. And so giving people an opportunity to share what they're feeling is, is, it serves two purposes. One, it shows you care. And two, you naturally do care more when you know what's going on with people. But it's yeah. also actually more efficient. And I think that's one of the things that gets lost about radical candor is, is its efficiency. Because if someone's on a call and they look, stressed or pissed off everybody else on the call especially if you're the leader and you're the one who looks stressed or pissed off everybody starts to blame themselves or wonder what's going on or mm. and and instead it, it may just have to do with the fact that you were up all night with uh with this new puppy that you got for your children <laughs> yeah. uh, or, or whatever so so if you know if you give a second just a couple of minutes for people to say what's going on for them it can it can show you care and it can also be more efficient I think another thing that is helpful right now is if you're a leader who used to have a one-on-one -on -one once a week, and maybe it was 45 minutes, have three 15-minute meetings throughout the week because mm -hmm. a lot happens right now in a week. And also, 45 minutes is a long chunk of time, and especially, uh, especially when, when people have a lot of demands on their time at home, as, as most of us do right now, more demands than we used to have. Uh, th then it, it can be easier. You can keep in better touch with people. Yeah. And also it can be easier to fit in. I, in my, one of my first jobs out of college, I was working in Moscow and my boss was in New York and he used to call me first thing when he woke up in the morning because of the time difference before he even got out of bed, he would just pick up the phone and call me. Yeah. And we would talk for not long, three, four five minutes, but he said it was a really good way for him 
to understand the tenor of what was happening in Moscow because there was, mm. it's, it's hard to be remote. It's hard to manage remotely. It's hard to build relationships remotely. And I will second effective. this. Yeah, we so we have uh, our chief of staff, Chelsea. She we we used to have uh, weekly meetings every Monday for forty minutes, an hour, and now mm-hmm. it's a ten minute call every morning. And those daily stand ups are so much more useful because yeah. it's your you keep a pulse on what's going on for the day. So I second that recommendation. Um, Veronique asked uh, in the chat here, can you be too empathetic? So you mentioned the point about checking in with everybody and how are they doing? Is there a point where that gets in the way of decision making or leadership? Uh, Yes, I think it's really important that you understand that showing that you care personally is very different from becoming creepily personal. (laughs) And, and it's a fine line because it's different. It's different for everyone. What is what's okay to say? What's not okay to say? What's okay to talk about? What's not okay to talk about? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, for example, at one point we were we were coaching a team of people to to get to know each other, and we were coaching the the leaders of of this company to start to have get to know you conversations with employees and. One of, the, one of the managers started to drill into one of his employees, the divorce of the parents of one of his employees, and his, his employee did not want to talk about it. And so part of, being, of showing you care personally is respecting other people's boundaries and respecting your own boundaries. Uh, I was doing a check, check-in call just the other day, and, and it kind of went off the rails because someone who felt that they were being very vulnerable and sharing something that was going on with them actually uh, uh, wound up crossing what for a lot of other people on the call was kind of uh, becoming creepily personal, I guess yeah, I would say. Boundary. And so, you, yeah, you want to make sure that you are uh, respecting your own boundaries and asking others to respect your boundaries and respecting other people's boundaries. That's part of, uh, of caring personally. And then I think the other way that empathy can go wrong, I call, sometimes I call radical candor compassionate candor. And I call it that to sort of distinguish between ruinous empathy and compassionate candor. Sometimes if you take empathy quite literally, it means you're literally feeling what the other person is feeling. So if someone is drowning and you also feel like you can't breathe, it's harder for you to help. So sometimes empathy can cause burnout, whereas compassion which is really about what can I, I understand that you're in pain and what can I do to help uh, is, is energizing. I mean, certainly the moments that I have felt the best throughout this crisis is when I've been helping other people deal with what they're dealing with. Yeah, it's great advice. So you've worked with a, a lot of the world's top tech companies and I'm sure they've, they, they consult you for how they can infuse this into the workplace. You see a lot of these tech giants um, listening to their people and going maybe over, you know, overboard with their nap rooms and foosball tables and all these crazy things. Is, is that a trend in being more empathetic or it, does it relate to radical candor buying you some of that caring currency? You know, I don't think that the the nap rooms are necessarily like care personally. <laughs> I do. Th- uh, there there is a little bit of um, an escalation of benefits in, <laughs> in Silicon Valley. Definitely. And uh, I, in fact, I, sometimes it's not the the uh, the snack rooms 
can become the definition of ruinous empathy because like there's so much crap to eat in there. It's everybody's gaining weight. <laughs> it's like, uh, so, so it's not always such a good thing. It, it can definitely go overboard, but I do think that, that making sure that you are addressing the human needs of your employees is, is really important. And yeah. not every company, you know, has money blowing out of the air conditioning vents like Google did. <laughs> and right. It offered incredible, incredible benefits. But, but you can, I remember I was, I was at a startup and we, we did not have money blowing out of the air conditioning vents to be sure. But we did bring in fruit in the morning and vegetables, cut up vegetables in the afternoon. And it, it made a difference in people's sort of sugar levels and, and productivity. <laughs> well, nice. yeah. See, we, we asked people what they wanted for our office. And, I, and then I had to go back and say, just because we don't have a kombucha tap doesn't mean I don't care about you. Like yeah. We, we, yeah. it was a good suggestion, but yeah. there's, yeah, there's a limit. Yeah, part of, part of uh, radical candor is challenging directly. And not like you can't give everybody in a company what they want because some people want the bag of Hershey kisses in the middle of the table and other people really find that a burden mm. to walk by. Yeah, that makes sense. So how, how does this change at small companies as they grow into bigger companies? Because in smaller companies, there is a little bit more decision making by committee and you're, you know, everybody has a say. So how does that evolve over time? Well, it depends on the small company. I certainly have worked with small companies that are little mini dictatorships, but, <laughs> but it is, I, I have found as companies grow, there's kind of an evolution. Uh, very often successful small companies are very radically candid. It's a small group of people. They all know each other well. Usually the better we know each other, the better we like each other and they get along really well. But the part of the reason why they're successful is they also are very clear about when the work isn't nearly good enough and, and when things are broken, how to fix them. So, so it's, it's a radically candid culture. And then because they're successful, they grow. And now there are a few hundred people and not everybody knows each other. You can't even remember everybody's names sometimes in those cases, let alone really care personally about them. So there's, and, but they don't want to lose that nice kind of family feeling. And so people tend to start, failing to challenge one another directly, usually because they're trying to be nice. And right. kind of a culture of ruinous empathy sets in. And, and that creates two problems. One is that bad work gets done, so the company becomes less effective. It impacts products, it impacts profitability. But the other thing that it does is it actually hurts the culture. Because it turns out that when the majority of people are being ruinously empathetic, the people who behave like jerks have a real advantage and they start to rise to the top. And as one person observed at a, at a startup where I was working, you know, the assholes are starting to win. And that's very bad for the culture. And yeah. usually when, when you have someone in a position of authority who's behaving like a jerk, the rest of the organization responds to that person with manipulative insincerity. Mm -hmm. And that is how a toxic workplace culture uh, sort of evolves. And so yeah. you really want to fight that as you, as you grow, you want to, it's one of the dangers of success. 
you have to constantly keep a pulse on it, I guess, because I think as you care more about people you know, when you, when they first join your small team, it's, it's easier to be direct, I think, because you're trying to match the, the role that you just hired. But then the yeah. more you care, the more you have to fight that gravity of ruinous empathy. Yes, absolutely. So for, for everyone listening, I want to leave them with some practical advice on how they can improve their skills with people and management and feedback. So are there any things that you would recommend for people that they can practice or put into action? Yeah, so the first one goes back to what I was talking about earlier is that go-to question. How are you going to solicit feedback? Take a moment right now, stop what you're doing, and write down your question. If it's not my question, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? Maybe it's Krista Quarles' question, tell me why I'm smoking crack. But what's the way you're going to ask, and who are you going to ask? When and where are you going to ask them? Like, do it. Just do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Solicit some feedback. Number two, focus on the good stuff. What's one person who you're going to tell in the next day, like not, not, in, not, in, not in the next week, but in the next 24 hours, you're going to tell them something you appreciate about the way they work because it is so important to give voice to the things we really like about yeah. working with people. And then think about, we all, often we talk at companies about technical debt, but we also have feedback debt. So who's the person who you work with who is doing something that has been bothering you for a long time and you know you should have said something, but you haven't said something? And go tell them. And go tell them not because you're pissed off, but as an act of kindness, as an act of, uh, of you know, here's what I see. I want to know what you see. And before you tell them about this yeah. thing they've been doing that bothers them, solicit some feedback from them and give them some praise. And the relief is probably extreme if you've been carrying something for a while about someone. Yes. The, the, re the relief of both of you is usually, usually extreme, but I don't want to oversell. Again, nine times out of 10, this is going to go way better than you think. <laughs> One time out of 10, you're going to have a radical candor train wreck. So what do you do if you have the train wreck? So if somebody gets really mad or really sad about what it is that you've said, the thing you want to do is you want to attend to the care personally dimension. When someone is angry, if you can learn to see the human need behind the anger instead of responding with anger of your own, mm. you are, you're batting above average. Uh, but also, sometimes you'll tell someone this thing and they just won't hear you. You mm. will have worked up your courage to say this thing and they just kind of brush you off. And that's when you've got to attend to the challenge directly dimension. So if you, if you offer radical candor and it doesn't go as expected, figure out, do I need to do more care personally here or do I need to do, do more challenge directly here? I'm glad you covered that. So for the one out of 10 that everybody has a negative experience with, yes. just snap into the, the caring mode and don't, don't be aggressive in return. Um, I, I want to turn to some questions because we've been getting so many of them through this whole thing, but I wanted to make sure we stayed on track. So um, oh, this is kind of funny. Jordan says, maybe we can look at it as a soup feedback instead of sandwich. Soup's always good no matter what. The heat will burn for a second, but then the soup is still good. So. <laughs> I like that. All right. I so like that. If you've got some questions for Kim, put them through into the q and I'm going to start with one I saw a little bit earlier from Sydney, which is, should we avoid training and making corrections via email? 
Yes, is the short answer. I think that that there there is a hierarchy of medium to to offer radical candor. Ideally, it's in person. We can't do that right now. But if you can't do it in person, which you probably cannot right now, unless you're living with your coworkers, sheltering in place with your coworkers, <laughs> video is the next best medium. Something like 85% of communication is nonverbal. And it is so important, so important to be able to see how the person is responding to what you're saying. I've said over and over again, radical canner gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. Yeah. And so you've got to adjust, use that framework and figure out, depending on how the person is responding, if they're getting emotional, that's your cue to show you care personally. If they're like, la, 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 that's your, that's your chance to challenge more directly. So... I think it's really important to, to do this over, over video if you can't do it in person. Yeah, a, phone call, a phone call is better than email, but just I built a Radical Candor app and the company failed. And, and I sort of realized at a certain point that if I'm trying to get people to put their phone away and look people in the eye and have a real conversation, Technology is, is, there's a role for technology, I think, but it's not, uh, it's not texting instead of really looking at people and talking with them. Yeah, great suggestion. Okay, so um, Brooke, let's see. Brooke says, do you find women have a more challenging time with radical candor because they're expected to be nice? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I think it's, it's difficult for men also in different ways. So, so here's the sort of gender and radical candor uh, thing. And it's actually the topic of my whole next book. So, so I could talk about this for the next 12 hours, but I'll try to be brief. <laughs> Are you so, writing the next book right now? And you're, you said you're in a writing cabin, yes, right? Yes, I, I am just up the hill from my house in a little shed with no, no uh, running water, but, um, but a lot of quiet. Wow. Well, I'm glad you have Wi-Fi. Yes, I do have Wi-Fi. Okay. So here, here are the things that happen. One is that very often a man who is the boss of a woman will hesitate to offer, offer her radical candor, will, will sort of pull his punches, not because he's some kind of misogynist jerk, but because he's been taught since he was a child to be gentler with women. And I think this really holds women back in their careers because they're not getting, I, I was talking to the head of L&D at a big bulge bracket bank, and he said he would see the same thing happen over and over and over again. A senior partner would go with an analyst to a, to a meeting, the analyst would make a mistake, and in week one, the analyst was a man. The partner let the man know in no uncertain terms that he screwed up, and he didn't repeat the mistake. The next week, same partner going with an analyst, this time a woman, and he doesn't tell her in such clear words. And, and then she repeats the mistake. And that's really, so you need to, as a woman, make sure that you are pulling radical candor out of, mm. uh, out of your peers who are men and out of your bosses who are men. And this can be tricky, I think, especially in today's world, men, men are feeling afraid. I was talking to a guy who said he was in a meeting and a woman in the meeting referred to this marketing program they were doing as Rolling Thunder. And he knew that if she knew the history of Rolling Thunder, which was a terrible uh, bo bombardment in, in the Vietnam War that, that killed a lot of civilians and didn't, 
arguably didn't make much uh, of a strategic advance, she probably wouldn't have used that as her metaphor. But he was afraid to be radically candid with her because he didn't want to be uh, accused of mansplaining. So you've got to create an environment in which the men around you can be radically candid with you as a woman. And that's hard. It's, It's extra work, but you've got to do it. And if you're a man, by the way, be radically candid. Um, man up. Yeah. Uh, so it's on, bo- on both sides. Yes. It's not, yeah. So, yeah. so if you're a woman and you're radically candid, here is what happens, especially if you're a leader, but no matter who you are, very often because of these sort of biased expectations uh, that women are going to be nice, you get unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. So you said something in a way that was no more aggressive than the men around you, but people freak out because you were radically candid. And they call you, they don't call you obnoxiously aggressive. You know, they call you the B word. They call you much more painful things. They say you're not likable. And it's very tempting in that situation, especially for young women early in their career, to move the wrong direction on challenge directly. And that's a huge problem because as, as problematic as obnoxious aggression is, ruinous empathy and manipulative insincerity are even less effective. So it will hurt you in your career if you allow that feedback to move you in the wrong direction on challenge directly. So you need to take a moment, uh, a, a moment to show that you care personally. And that's a little bit of extra emo- emotional labor, but it's, it doesn't need to be endless. It's just like, because I know you really care about this project, don't get dragged too high up on the care personally dimension as a, as a woman in the office. Because if you wind up baking cupcakes for everybody, unless you love baking cupcakes, you're going to burn out. <laughs> can't be, yeah, can't, can't bake for everyone. <laughs> you can uh, if you love it, but personally, I hate baking. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Eliza says, how do you think about giving p- feedback or performance reviews during this time of COVID where psychological safety and stress are so high? It is really tempting right now never to give any feedback. It's really tempting to retreat to ruinous empathy. But if you think about the times in your career when you've been on the receiving end of ruinous empathy, you, you, you will remember that in those times when you knew something was not quite right, but nobody was telling you exactly what it was, that actually increases your stress, doesn't decrease your stress. Hmm. So if, if you remember that radical candor, that, that challenging someone directly is also a way to show that you care personally, then you won't retreat into, uh, into ruinous empathy. In the, sto- in, the, in the book, I write a story about this guy, Bob, who I failed to give feedback to. And think about your Bob moments and remember that you're hanging on, when you're being radically candid, you're hanging on to your kindness, uh, but, but you're, you're not relinquishing uh, your, your challenge directly. Right. Okay. Um, last question I think we'll, we'll have time for here is uh, from James. What happens if the culture of ruinous empathy has been going on for years? Can you have a culture shift without drastic turnover? Yes, absolutely. You can have, uh, you can have a culture shift. And I've, seen, I've worked with a number of, of companies and organizations to do this successfully. So the key thing is to re- remind everyone that you're not abandoning when you're moving to radical candor, you're not abandoning the care personally dimension. You're not abandoning kindness. 
you're mm. reminding people that that it is an act of kindness to to tell one another when mistakes are being made and and the best way to start if possible if it's coming from the leaders of the organization is to get the leaders to start by soliciting feedback go back to that order of operations and start by asking for criticism so as kim said everyone should today before you do anything else start to solicit that feedback because that seems like the first step to making a positive change and cultural shift in your business. Kim, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for helping us walk the line between ruinous empathy and radical candor. For anyone that hasn't read the book, please go get the book and look out for Kim's next book as soon as she gets out of her uh, quarantine in her cabin. Yes, absolutely. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Kim. Really enjoyed the conversation and great questions. Thanks to, thanks to the audience. Hey, thanks for listening to Process Makes Perfect. If you're listening on your earbuds, on a run, in the car, we also have a version on YouTube. So if you wanna see this in color video with me interviewing all these great guests, check it out on YouTube. Just search Chris Ronzio and you'll find my channel on there. If you found this helpful, we'd love for you to leave a review or rate the podcast. If you found the information valuable, please share it with a friend, a family member, or anyone else you think could benefit from the information. Remember to connect with me at Chris Ronzio on all social media platforms or the company at Trainual. That's train U-A-L, like a training manual, everywhere that you want to follow us. Thanks again for watching or listening, and we hope to see you next time.